Okay, brothers and sisters, it's time to take out God's Word together. I would encourage you to take out your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the pew in front of you that you can use. And we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 32 here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 32. Topic of today's message is singleness for the glory of God. It's where we come to in our text in our trek through this wonderful book of 1 Corinthians, singleness for the glory of God. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, why should I care about this? I could have slept in today. I could have stayed home. I could have watched on replay, or at least told somebody I watched on replay. Singleness, I'm married. This doesn't apply to me, right? Now, for some of us, it's directly applicable. There are those in our midst who are single, who are living a single life, trying to do so for the glory of God. But others of us are not currently single, but will be, once again, later in life. Now, as much as we do not want it to happen, divorces do happen. But more specifically, those of us who are married, one of us is going to outlive the other, more than likely. Neither of us knows which one of us in a marriage is going to die first. Neither neither of us know how soon that's going to happen, and how soon we might need to be once again facing singleness and facing the decision on whether to remarry or to remain single. Those of us who are not single right now are part of the body of Christ with single brothers and sisters in our church family. So we need to learn about their experience. We need to learn how to best love them. We need to learn how to serve them how to help bear their burdens, to be sensitive to the fact that they live a very different lifestyle than we do with different struggles and different hardships. And so all of us have been single at one point. Some of us are still single. Some of us will yet be single again. This message is applicable to every single one of us. For the longest time, singles in the church have felt like second-class citizens, I believe. In church, not just in this church, but in churches, singles have felt like second-class citizens. There are all kinds of sermons and sermon series and classes on marriage. How often do you hear one on singleness? Everyone is always asking them, when are they going to settle down? And trying to play matchmaker with them. Marriage is held up as this ideal of all ideals. Just to let you in on a little something you might not be familiar with, in the ministry world, single people often have a hard time finding jobs in churches. They're often paid less because the church thinks, well, they don't have a family to support. But more than that, churches are often reluctant to hire a single man, especially as pastor or associate or a youth guy, because of the temptation that they believe they will face that married people do not. Some churches have singles ministries and singles small groups that are really just predicated on matchmaking. So all this to say, for the longest time, I believe singles in the church have felt like second-class citizens. But Paul, in our text today, instead of feeling sorry for single people, actually holds it up as a virtue, even an advantage over being married in some significant ways. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians 7, let's read our text. It starts in verse 32. I'll read down to verse 40. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. I want to look at three things from our text today, three ideas about singleness. We're going to look at the advantage of singleness, the commitment of singleness, and the plausibility of singleness. All three, we'll take them in turn. First comes the advantage of singleness that Paul tells us here in our text. There's a misconception among Christians today that singleness is bad. Singleness is bad. No one would ever do this on purpose, we sometimes think. We feel sorry for anyone who has this cross to bear. But Paul here is actually arguing that singleness is preferable to marriage. Singleness is preferable to marriage, at least in some ways. Now, not in a worldly way. Not in a worldly way. The world says, stay single. Play the field, right? That's what the world says. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about singleness for the glory of God, which implies celibacy. It implies celibacy. Look at verses 32 through 34 one more time with me in your Bibles. 32 through 34 verses. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man he's talking about. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man, well, his interests are divided, right? He's thinking about how to please the Lord, but also he needs to think about the needs and wants and desires of his wife. The woman, same thing. Right? Look also at verse 28 with me. We read verse 28 last week during last week's sermon. But in verse 28, look what Paul says there. He says, But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Watch this. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Worldly troubles and anxieties. Paul is talking about how the single person does not have to face some of the worldly troubles and anxieties that a married person does. Those of us who have been married for longer than a month can attest to this, can we not? When you put one sinner and another sinner together in a relationship, it does not equal less sin. It does not equal less problems. Marriage is a glorious gift that has been given to some of us, but it's a hard thing. It's a thing that we are called to walk in, 
A thing that we must deny ourselves to walk in, just as the single person must deny themselves to walk in singleness. The single person does not have to experience the trials that a married person has to experience. Think about trials such as caring for a sick spouse. Trials such as raising children. Children are a blessing. They're a wonderful blessing. But to those of us who are raising children, those of us who have, we know it's hard, right? When God said to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 after the curse that Eve would experience pain in childbearing, I don't think that just means the physical act of having a child on the day that they are born. There's an emotional pain to raising children. There's an emotional hardship and even a spiritual hardship to raising children as glorious of a responsibility as it is and as wonderful of a gift as it is. We're not denying that. The single person does not experience the anxiety for a spouse or for children in the world, especially when it comes to salvation. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you have watched others experience the heartache and the anxiety of watching an adult child walk away from the Lord or walk away from the church. There are deep and real worldly troubles that you experience and that you enter into and accept when you get married. The single person does not have to face these. The single person, Paul says, is free to devote 100% of their focus and their energy on pleasing the Lord. Notice how Paul said the married person, their interests are divided. The single person can have an undivided focus, 100% of their focus and energy on pleasing the Lord. The married person, on the other hand, must also be concerned with the needs and desires of their spouse, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. If you're married, God is calling you to be concerned with the needs and desires of your spouse. It is not as though Paul is saying that married people are doing it wrong, that married people are living this ungodly life by caring about the needs and desires of their spouse. No, if God calls you to marriage, He's also calling you to care for that person, to serve them to have a good, godly anxiety for their needs and desires. But the single person is free to devote 100% of their focus and energy on pleasing the Lord. There's an availability that a single person has that is desirable when it comes to serving the Lord and His kingdom. Not in a worldly way again. The world says, be single so you can be free to live for yourself. The world holds up singleness, right? The world holds up youth culture and freedom from any restriction on what we can do. Don't tie yourself down. Be free. Be single so you can be free to live for yourself. No, singleness, brothers and sisters, singleness frees you. It does. But it frees you up to serve God and His people. This is not a freedom to be used to live selfishly. It's a freedom to be used to serve God and His people. So there is an availability that the single person has to serve God and His people, that a married person does not have. A single person can drop everything from a phone call. Just drop everything and go and help someone in an emergency, a a friend, a family member. They They can pack up a toothbrush and a couple changes of clothes and go spend the night somewhere else on the drop of a hat. Whereas if I were to leave my wife and kids alone without me for a few days with no notice, that would be unloving to them, right? A married person cannot do this. It would be wrong for a married person 
to act like that, while a single person has that availability to serve God and to serve others. And so there is an advantage, a genuine advantage, Paul says, when it comes to serving in the kingdom of God to being single over being married. But not only is there an advantage, but there's a commitment. There's a commitment that it takes to live this life. The commitment of singleness. Look at verse 37 with me in your Bibles. Verse 37, one more time. He says, But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart. Firmly established. This is a decision that is consciously made. It's a conscious choice living for the glory of God. Paul says he's not to be under necessity. If someone decides to live this way, it's not because of necessity or not under compulsion, we might say. Now, where have you heard that phrase in the Bible before? In 2 Corinthians, when Paul talks about giving, our giving, our commitment to giving to the Lord, giving money to the Lord is not to be under compulsion. It's to come from our heart, a conscious choice. In the same way, living a single life for the glory of God, It's not to be done under compulsion. It's to be a conscious choice for the glory of God. It is not meant to be a settling for second best. Now here we need to make a comment. There are those who are single in churches all across the country and across the world who deeply desire marriage. And God has not yet presented them with that person that could be their spouse for a lifetime. They deeply desire marriage. They long for it. They ache for it. And it's just not coming. Right? That is a calling to singleness, but perhaps it's a temporary calling. Perhaps. We don't know for sure. But Paul seems to be talking here of someone who is making a conscious choice, a deliberate decision to live single for the glory of God. He says in that same verse that this person needs to have their desires under control. Look back at verse 36. In verse 36, he says, if, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, then let them marry. Right? It is no sin. Because singleness, brothers and sisters, a life of singleness implies and requires celibacy. Singleness requires celibacy. The physical intimacy that God has given to human beings as such a wonderful gift is something that God has restricted into the bounds of marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman only. And so the single person is committed to singleness and sacrificing, sacrificing the outlet to those desires. And it is not as though, brothers and sisters, it is not as though the single Christian can live life unmarried do all this work for the Lord, and then go home and look at pornography whenever they want. That is not celibacy. It's a celibacy not only of body, but of mind and heart as well. Look back at verse 9 in your Bibles. Verse 9, same chapter, verse 9. It might have been a month and a half ago we were were here in verse 9 with our our preaching and our sermons. Verse 9 says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Remember how we said the Bible is intensely practical. This is not beneath the dignity of marriage. For God to say one of the purposes of marriage is to help two people not sin sexually. It's one of the purposes 
of marriage. It's one of the reasons marriage is a gift, right? It's not below the dignity of marriage. That's part of it. It's not the only part of it, right? It's not the only reason people get married, but it's part of it. It really is. And on the flip side, singleness is a commitment to live your life for the Lord, even to the point of forgoing that. Celibacy for the Lord. Look at verses 39 through 40. This is not something that just applies only to a select few. Remember, those of us who are married, if we outlive our spouse, we will have to make the decision to either remarry or to remain single and devote all of our energy to serving the Lord and His people. Look at verse 39. Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. But watch this. Only in the Lord. That tells us a lot about Christian marriage right there, right? Paul says you're free to remarry after your spouse dies, but only to marry someone in the Lord, to only to marry another Christian. And then verse 40, Paul says, Yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So there are those of us who are going to face this question once again, even if we are not single right now. The question of remarrying or staying single and devoting our entire lives to the Lord. Can I just say that in my experience in churches, some of the most devoted servants of the Lord that I have seen, some of the greatest servants to God's people in His church have been widows and widowers who remained single and gave of their time, gave of their energy to the church and to its people, constantly living in service of God and His people. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do after a period of time where God has blessed you to experience the joys and even the hardships of marriage. Now notice also, singleness is a commitment. It's not a superpower. We talked about this probably maybe a month and a half ago. Singleness is not a superpower. We've often thought of it like that, right? There's superheroes with superpowers and singleness, the gift of singleness. Paul talks about that in verses 6 and 7, the gift of singleness. We've often read that and thought, oh, that means it's like a superpower that only a certain, you know, very few number of people have. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. Some people are called to singleness at different times in their life. In fact, all of us at different times in our life have been called to singleness. And no matter what God calls you to, He will always give you what you need to live faithfully within that calling. So if God calls you to a life of singleness and celibacy, He will give you the strength that you need and the ability to live faithfully in that calling. If God calls you to a life of singleness after a period of time of being married, He will give you the strength and the ability to live faithfully within that calling. Some of us who are married right now might be sitting here thinking, living years as a single person in a celibate life? I can't imagine that. But no, listen, you would be surprised at God's ability to give you exactly what you need, but sometimes He doesn't give it until you need it. We have enough grace for today. Tomorrow God will give us enough grace for tomorrow. His mercies are new every morning. Let tomorrow worry about itself. And so we have the advantage of singleness, we have the commitment of singleness, but now I want to turn our attention to the plausibility of it. The plausibility of living a single life for the glory of God. So many people, even Christians, see this as unthinkable, unreasonable. 
And that specifically, they see it as unreasonable that a person could commit their entire life to this, right? We, we see people who are widows and widowers and maybe divorced and then after that living a single life. We understand that. But for someone to commit to foregoing marriage, to foregoing an outlet to these physical desires for their whole life, even Christians a lot of times see this as unthinkable and unreasonable. Perhaps it was about 10 years ago, there was a movie that came out. Now, I've never seen this movie, but just by the title, I know it's a comedy. It's a movie called The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Never seen it. But I could tell you right now, even though I haven't seen it, that's a comedy. Now, what a sad comment on our culture that people who've never seen a movie like that understand intuitively it's a comedy. Why? Because the idea is it's unfathomable that a person could go 40 years without experiencing some kind of outlet to their physical desires. Unfathomable, right? This should not be unfathomable, brothers and sisters. This should not be unfathomable at all. And yet it is in our sexualized culture. People will argue that this idea of singleness for the glory of God for your entire life could not be what God expects of someone because of the lack of fulfillment. There's such a lack of fulfillment that they would experience. They wouldn't be fulfilled in their life. Surely God cannot expect this. But brothers and sisters, think about it. Jesus never married. Can we agree, those of us who are Christians, can we at least agree that Jesus lived the fullest, most complete life that anyone has ever lived? Can we agree on that? Jesus lived the fullest, most complete life that anyone has ever lived. Now, what does that tell us? One of the things it tells us is the ability to express yourself sexually is not essential to human flourishing. The ability to express yourself sexually is not essential to human flourishing. Jesus never did. There are many men and women who live lives like this, completely fulfilled in their heart, that they are living a complete and full human life. There are those who experience same-sex attraction without asking for it, without wanting to experience those desires. They experience within themselves an attraction to those of the same sex. And yet... They have committed to following the Lord Jesus. And so for their entire lives, many of these people are denying that natural desire so that they may follow Jesus Christ. They're saying no to a desire that comes up naturally. that They didn't ask for it. It's just there. They're saying no to that so that they can follow Jesus Christ. And they're doing so with fulfillment and happiness and joy. Is it hard? Yes. But all of us, brothers and sisters... All of us are called to do that, are we not? You see, the world says, if you have a desire within you that's natural, that just comes up naturally, it's wrong to suppress that desire. It's torture to suppress that desire. You cannot be expected to suppress that desire. God gave it to you. You should fulfill it. It's wrong not to fulfill that desire. That's what the world says. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Brothers and sisters, we know, those of us who have lived for Christ, we know that a truly fulfilled life 
does not come by giving in to every natural desire that you have. To live a truly fulfilled life, you must deny yourself. In this sin-stained world, in this sin-infected world, you must deny some of your natural desires to live a truly fulfilled life. If you give in to all of them, we know that's the path to destruction. Not just eternal destruction, that's a path to worldly destruction. Sorrow in this life. You've seen people who do it. They just give in to every urge that they have. Where does it lead them? It leads them into sorrow and suffering. The path to fulfillment, the path to maturity, means denying some of our natural desires. Brothers and sisters, when sin came into the world, when the fall of man happened in Genesis 3, sin entered the world and it affected so many things. It infected so many things. And one of the things that it infected were our desires. Our desires, brothers and sisters, fell with the fall. It wasn't just the ground that was infected. It wasn't just childbirth that was going to be changed after sin came into the world. It wasn't just that death was going to now happen. No, our desires, our desires fell with the fall. And so many of us have natural desires that we don't ask for, that just come up naturally within us, that we must say no to, to the glory of God. Some of the things that you have to say no to are not the same as the things that I have to say no to, but all of us have them. And so Jesus' life and Jesus' words show us the path to true human flourishing does not have to go through a life where you have the ability to express yourself sexually. Now what about the loneliness? Some people throw that up and say, surely God cannot expect me to live a life of loneliness, right? Now, brothers and sisters, we have to acknowledge this is a real sacrifice for those who choose a single lifestyle. It's a real sacrifice. You go home at the end of the day and the house is empty. It's a real sacrifice. But this is why the Lord has given us the church. This is why God has given us one another. Deep relationships can and do happen outside of marriage. Intimacy does not have to be romantic and sexual. Look at David and Jonathan in the Old Testament and their deep friendship and the fellowship that they had. The world looks at that and they can't understand it. They don't get it. They think, oh, surely there was something going on there between those two that was more than just platonic friendship. No, there's, there's a deep fellowship that can happen and does happen often in relationships that are not sexual at all, in relationships that are not romantic at all. Because God has given us to one another for that purpose. This is one of the ways that you can flourish as a human being without having an outlet for your physical romantic desires. There's a friendship intimacy and a deep fellowship that all of us can experience outside of marriage. One of the things that you're never going to see here at Columbia Christian Church, as long as it's up to me and as long as I'm here, is a ministry for singles. A singles ministry. And you think, why not? What's wrong with that? Well, the church as a whole has done a really poor job with this in my lifetime. And I'm not knocking churches who have these, but it always seems like singles ministry are matchmaking things. Right? It's, it's just a way for us to get all, all the poor people who are experiencing this horrible time of loneliness and let's just put you guys together and maybe a couple of you are, will, will get together and marry. Right? It, it's just demeaning. Instead, instead, what we should be doing as a church is we should be folding one another into our lives. 
Those of us who have families should be folding in the single people here in this church into our family lives, into our traditions, into our holidays, into our, our dinner tables, into our vacations, right? We, we've held marriage up as this ideal for so long and said singleness is this rare superpower and we're always talking to single people like, hey, let, let me help you find a spouse. We'll set you up with someone nice. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine in the first century, in a synagogue in Jerusalem, an older woman in the synagogue going up to Jesus and saying, now honey, when are you going to settle down with a nice girl? Can you imagine that? Marriage is not the great ideal. It's not. Marriage, Paul says in Ephesians 5, is a picture of something else. Your marriage is actually a picture of something else. In Ephesians 5, Paul says it's a picture of Christ in the church. That's the ultimate purpose of your marriage. Your marriage is a shadow of another reality, Christ and the church. Jesus said in Matthew 22, in the age to come, there will be no marriage. There will be no marriage in the new heavens and new earth. Sam Alberry, who's a guy that's written extensively on this and is himself a single pastor and has been for his entire adult life, he says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel... Ephesians 5, right? If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Well, married people, your marriage points to something greater than your marriage. It points to the way Jesus loves the church. But single people, your singleness, lived for the glory of God, points others to the fact that in Jesus we have everything we need for a full life. And single people... That's something that a lot of us married people need to understand better. There's a lot of us who are married who think, what, what I need, I find what I need in my spouse. I find what I need in my children. Single people, you can be a wonderful picture to those of us who are married of the sufficiency of the gospel, saying that in Jesus we have everything we need. I don't find everything I need in my spouse. I don't find everything I need in my kids. They're wonderful gifts, but they don't give me what I need. And if I try to go to them for what only God can give me, I'm going to put a standard on them that they can never live up to. I cannot love them rightly unless I go to Jesus for everything that I need and find in Jesus everything that I need. Single people, you can show the rest of us that by your faithfulness to the Lord in your singleness. God has given us the church to combat this issue of loneliness. And so we need to be folding one another in. Those of us who are married and have kids, we need to be folding single people into our lives because brothers and sisters, they are our family. They are our family. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, that older men in the church were to treat them as fathers. Younger men were to treat them as brothers Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And so in a healthy church, the line between blood relationships and church families should be blurred. Does that make sense? In a healthy church, the line between blood family and church family should be blurry. We should be folding one another into our family lives. And so... Why does singleness for the glory of God seem so unfathomable and unreasonable even to Christians? 
Why do we often look at this idea that a person could commit their entire life to singleness for the glory of God and think that's just unthinkable, that's just unreasonable? Why do Christians think this? Well, I think it's because so many who call themselves Christians are not actually giving 100% of their lives over to the Lord. So they can't fathom someone else doing it in a different way. I think there's so many people who call themselves Christians who are not actually giving 100% of themselves over to the Lord. So they can't fathom someone else actually giving every single ounce of themselves and every single corner of their heart over to God and keeping nothing back. Surely you can't keep nothing back, right? I mean, Jesus is good, but we need much more than Jesus to live a satisfying life, right? God is good, but God's just a a piece of the pie chart in our nice, perfectly symmetrical pie chart of life, right? Now, brothers and sisters, when, when Jesus calls you to follow Him, He demands everything. Every single part of you. There is no part of you that He does not want to grab and make His. There is no part of you that he is okay with you keeping back from yourself. God, you can have everything but this, but this is just this is mine over here. That's not how it works. If you want to follow Christ, you've got to give it all up. Now, when you hear that, the first time you hear that, it seems like a threat. Your, your flesh will come up and start crying out, no, don't do that. Don't give it all up to him. It, it'll be dangerous. You're going to lose what you love. Don't give it all away. Your flesh is crying out saying, don't do that. Satan is telling you, don't do that. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, I've felt that. I know what that feels like. And when you make the decision to go ahead and do it anyway, you realize this is what you were created for. This is what you were made for. To give 100% of yourself over to the Lord. You realize His plans for you satisfy your heart in a way that you never could have found by keeping things back for yourself. His plans for you are so much greater and so much more satisfying than any of your own plans for yourself. Give it up to Him. Give your life up to Him. Give those little, deep, dark corners of your heart that you've been holding back, give them up to Him. And it might hurt right away. You might go through a period of growing pains. But let me tell you, you will come out the other side satisfied. How do I know that? Because you're a human being. Because God made you. He made you for Him. He made your heart for Him. He didn't make you for you to keep it for yourself. Give it to Jesus. Don't hold anything back. And check your heart here, brothers and sisters. If a lifetime of singleness for the glory of God is unfathomable to you, if it seems crazy, might it be because you yourself have not given 100% over to the Lord. You're still holding back from Him and you cannot imagine someone else doing that in another form, in another way. Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it. We do this each week, but right now I'd like to give just a few moments to everyone in here for us to pray silently. You know, we usually have an invitation song where we invite 
people to respond to what they just heard. But this silent prayer time is an invitation time where we're, we're asking every single person in here to respond to the Lord with what you just heard. So we're going to have a time of silent prayer it's just between you and God. What did He just lay on your heart? I don't even know. How did that message hit you? How did His words hit you in your specific season of life? And with all that you've experienced, I don't know. It's different for every single one of us. And so we're all going to go to the Lord right now in silent prayer. We're all going to respond to what we just heard. And then after a few moments of that, we'll come back. We'll have a time of public response for those who need to respond publicly.